Please take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to start where we left off last Sunday. For those of you who are new to our fellowship, we've been studying the book of John for several weeks now, working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of John. And we begin this morning at chapter 3, verse 14. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible and invite you to read in whatever version you might have with you. John 3.14 And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in Him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged, He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. There is a group of Bedouins in North Africa known as the Tuaregs. The Tuaregs have for centuries had as the symbolic piece for their tribe a cross. They don't know the origin. They do not know the meaning of their symbol, the cross. You see, they are Muslims who have adopted the cross as their symbol without any kind of attachment intellectual, spiritual, or emotional to that cross except it's simply a symbol. In America, and probably in the Western world in general, it seems as if we have lost the sense of the origin and meaning of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is illustrated In a story which I read about a young lady in Manhattan, she was looking for a piece of jewelry for a special occasion. She went to a posh Fifth Avenue jewelry store, was waited on, and finally narrowed the choices down to two pieces of jewelry. Both necklaces, both in the shape of a cross, but they differed. And she was in a quandary over which one to choose. The salesperson said, which one do you like better, this one or this one? And then, hesitantly, she took her finger and she pointed to one and said, I want the one with the little man on it. She was without understanding of the cross. The little man, of course, we know, represents Christ. And she didn't understand. But the real meaning of the cross, even beyond the person of Jesus, is God's love. It's the finest expression of God's love to mankind. Paul writes in the book of Romans, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we know how Jesus died. He died on a cross. In His own words, Jesus said about Himself, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That is the most clear picture of love that has ever been painted in the history of the world. Nothing will ever touch it. 
in terms of its significance to us. So what does this passage of Scripture teach us about the love of God as seen in the cross of Jesus? Well, to begin with, it teaches us the extent of the love of God. In verse 16, this most familiar of all New Testament verses, the Bible says, For God so loved the world. The Bible teaches us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Jesus' love was the love that was given so that we could be made right with God. God so loved the world. He loved those in the world who were unlovely as well as unlikely. Remember when Jesus carried out His ministry on earth? That it was very common for Him to be in contact with lepers. And if you know anything about the Old Testament law, if you didn't want to be contaminated, not just physically contaminated, but in some sense even more seriously, spiritually contaminated, you wouldn't even get close to a leper for fear that you might be touched by a leper or brush a leper in a crowd and you too would become, in the eyes of God, someone who was stigmatized because you had been touched by someone with this disease, which is representative of sin in the Old Testament. Jesus hung out with lepers. Jesus loved the lame, the people who were not the beautiful people in His culture. The Lord Jesus still has a a thing for the unlovely. Do you know that? He Himself was not lovely. If we'd been picking someone to star in the role of Jesus, we would have picked somebody maybe like Brad Pitt. Somebody who was just handsome. Almost so handsome he was pretty, you know. Pretty boy. But the Bible says this. The Bible says this about the Lord Jesus Christ. In prophesying the coming Messiah, the Scripture says, there was nothing in His appearance that would attract us to Him. So that's no accident. That was under the sovereignty of God, that Jesus would be very ordinary. I think of a man that some of you may be familiar with. His name is David Ring. David suffers from cerebral palsy. He's a man in his 50s now. He's, of all things, a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he stands to preach, he says... At the outset, when he's introduced to a crowd he's never been before, he says, I have cerebral palsy. What's your problem? And then he gives a beautiful presentation of the grace of God just in his presence. That in itself is an illustration of the goodness of God and the graciousness of God. But he shows how God, through Christ, loved him as one of the unlovely in the world. Sigmund Freud no Christian for sure, probably an atheist, made this observation. In a moment of candor, he said, In the depths of my heart, I cannot help being convinced that in my dear fellow men, with only a few exceptions, all of them are worthless. He probably is making a statement about his own feelings regarding himself. This brilliant man did not know the love of God in his life, nor the love of God for the unlovely in the world. 
Jesus loves the unlovely. And He loves also the unlikely. Jesus is portrayed in Scripture as being around prostitutes. He was accused of not knowing who a particular prostitute was, as this woman was lavishing her tears and washing the feet of Jesus with her hair. And the guest, Jesus, was approached by his host, a Pharisee, who said, Don't you know who this woman is? And Jesus said, By all means I know who she is. She's a person whom I love. She's a person for whom I'm going to die. I love her. I'm going to give my life for this woman. He didn't say all those things, but it was really in the tenor of what he did say in response. He hung out with tax collectors. He even chose one of the tax collectors to be one of his apostles, Matthew or Levi. He had two names. And the general population of the nation of Israel hated tax collectors because they cheated them. Remember the little tax collector Zacchaeus? He was a cheat par excellence. He was hated by the inhabitants of Jericho and the surrounding environs because he had cheated them over and over again and he had the law backing him up. He was up a tree looking for Jesus as he heard that Christ was coming to Jericho. And when Jesus got at the sycamore fig tree where he was perched, he stopped and he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. Today I'm coming to your house. And just that quickly, that little man Zacchaeus jumped out of the tree and escorted Jesus to be his guest. I would like to have been a fly on the wall to hear the conversation that it took place in that home that night. But what we do know is that Zacchaeus changed his life. And that's really not the right way to say it. Zacchaeus' life was changed by the love of God in Jesus Christ. He was a different man after that encounter. Jesus' love is for the unlovely and the unlikely. Would you consider yourself to be unlovely? Maybe not on the outside. Maybe on the outside. Would you consider yourself inside to be unlovely? Do you not like yourself? Do you find yourself saying things like this? You can never do anything right. You have been a total failure in your life. Do you ever say things like that to you? As we're going to see, and we might as well take a look at it now, in verses 17 and 18, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. See, Jesus came to save mankind from His sin. 18, He, now He changes from a general statement in verse 17 to a personalized statement, because remember, he's talking to an individual whom we met last week, Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, and the teacher of Israel, a man of significance, which meant absolutely nothing as to whether he would see or enter the kingdom of God. Because he was one of those who was unlikely Because of the sin in his life. And the reality is we're all unlovely and unlikely in and of ourselves because we're sinners separated from God by our sin. But the good news for us is that God so loved the world that He did not send His 
has sent his son Jesus to condemn us, to judge us, but to save us. Isn't that cool? Look at verse 18. He who believes in me is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If you condemn yourself, you're in good company because in this passage the Scripture would indicate that if you're under judgment, it's because it's your choice to be under judgment. And you are self-condemned because you have yet to embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior and believe that God sent Him to save you from your sins, acknowledging the fact that you are a sinner. And apart from Christ, you will never know God and the joy of eternal life in your life. The word which is translated perishing in this section of Scripture has to do not with the end of life in a sense, but it actually speaks of the experiencing of the total failure and loss of all that makes life worthwhile. Given time and given circumstances, every human being comes to the place where his or her life begins to come apart at the seams. It begins to disintegrate because all that is worthwhile is found in Christ. He's the one who gives us the power to live what Jesus Himself describes in the book of John chapter 10 as a life that is an abundant life. A life that is more than enough than anything we will ever need in our lives. This idea of perishing is the idea of everlasting perishing. In fact, in the book of 2 Thessalonians, Paul describes it as eternal destruction. That's an oxymoron. Those words don't even fit with one another, right? If something's destroyed, it's annihilated. But when the Bible speaks of the fate of people who by their own choice refuse to believe in Jesus Christ, refuse the love of God expressed in the person of Jesus Christ, by their own choice, they go out into eternity and they live in a state of everlasting destruction. It need not be so because of who Jesus is and what He's done for us. The story is told by Bill Hull of a child, a female, who had been orphaned as an infant. She found herself before the age of ten in her fourth orphanage. She had been expelled from the three that she had lived in previously. And she was very close to being expelled for the fourth time. The administrator of that orphanage called the assistant administrator in and they were discussing the behavior of this child. And the administrator said, if she messes up one more time, she's out of here. And as she said that, she looked out the window where her office was situated at the orphanage and she saw this child walking, sort of sneaking along the edge of the wall, trying not to be seen. And as she watched the child make her way around the wall and climb a big elm tree and then skinny out onto a limb that overhung the wall, she had something that looked like a piece of paper in her hand. When she came down from the tree, as the administrator and her assistant watched carefully, she noticed, that is the administrator, as did the assistant, noticed that the 
paper was not in the child's hand. The administrator said to the assistant, go and find out what that was that the girl put in the tree. The assistant went directly, went outside the gate, reached up, pulled what was a piece of paper from the tree, opened it, read those words to herself, then made a beeline to the administrator's office. As she walked in, she didn't say a word. She just handed the note to this administrator. And these are the words which appeared printed on the paper. To anyone who finds this, I love you. Here was a child who had suffered rejection. But here was a child because she knew what it was like not to be loved. Loved with such greatness and wanted to find someone whom she could love. The tree of Calvary, the cross upon which Jesus died, was representative of his rejection. He was rejected by his kinsmen. He was rejected by the world. The Bible tells us in the opening remarks of the book of John that there was the true light, speaking of Jesus, which comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. He was rejected by His own people. He was familiar with rejection and the pain of rejection. Do you think Jesus didn't hurt when He was rejected? And add to that, this was even more serious He was rejected by His own Father. God the Father rejected Him. When He was on the cross, Jesus said, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? We could put the word, rejected Me. Because Jesus had been made to become sin on our behalf. All of us. He was made to become sin so that we might have The possibility of becoming right with God. That is the love of God. God so loved the world. The expense of God's love is also seen in the cross, not only the extent of it. Look again at verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He did not give a servant to pay for the sin of the world. He did not send an angel nor an archangel. He sent His only begotten Son to pay for our sins. We see the great price uh, of God that God the Father and God the Son prayed in what happened on the cross and the person who was on the cross. It would have been one thing if Jesus was one of many sons, but He was the only Son. Can you imagine? You, if you have a child, some of you have several children, Would you ever consider sacrificing your child for another human being? Would you? You might be willing to sacrifice yourself for your spouse or for a parent or for your children or your grandchildren. Maybe you would do that. That would be a stretch for many of us. But we would think about that. But to sacrifice yourself for people who didn't like you, who in fact rejected you, That's exactly what the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. The Bible says, though we were enemies, talking about our state before we experienced the love of God by receiving Christ, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one 
who makes us right. And God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The word which is translated gave is often used in the sense of gift giving. And certainly that describes what God did for us in Jesus. He gave us His Son, His only Son. Described by Paul in this way in 2 Corinthians 9.15. Thanks be to God for His indescribable, unspeakable, is one of the translations, unspeakable gift. The cost to God was directly. God the Father, as we saw, was in Christ. Reconciling the world to Himself. When the Bible was being translated into the language of the Tzetzel tribe in South America, it was translated this way. God hurt so much in His heart that He gave His only begotten Son. That was the translation of what love was. God loves us that much that He would give Jesus to pay the price for our sin. God the Father aches, as it were, that we be saved. God gave His all when He gave His Son. Now, the last thing we're going to see in this text, in addition to the fact that the extent of God's love is represented in the cross because Christ died for the sins of the world. And secondly, that the expense of God's love may be quantified in the fact that He gave His only begotten Son. And lastly, we're going to see the experience of God's love is found only in the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 16 again. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Permit me a moment to interpret whoever believes in Him We've run across this several times already in the study of the book of John. We'll encounter it again as well. Actually, literally translated, this is what it says, that whoever believes into Him will not perish, but have eternal life. What does that mean? Well, the picture is painted very clearly by the Spirit of God through the Apostle John. As we think of this, the picture is clear. When we really believe, it's not simply believing in, which could be confined to the head. We would agree to the various doctrines of the Christian faith that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ lived a sinless life as a fully human and fully divine being. That Christ went to the cross and there He paid the price for our sin by becoming sin for us. He was punished for our sins. He subbed in for us. And then He was raised from the dead and then He's ascended into heaven and He's seated at the right hand of God and He's coming again. You know, you can have all that clearly spelled out in your mind and not have eternal life, still be self-condemned, still being under judgment because you haven't believed into Him. That idea of believing into Him is the idea of having direction and movement. And as your goal, you have as your goal to know Him and to trust in Him. It's the idea of entrusting oneself to Him. That's what real faith is. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. And so, we move toward Jesus. 
Jesus is moving toward us. Be sure of that. But we move toward Him and we receive Him. And if you know the background of that, that means you welcome Him into your life. It would be like some stranger coming today and knocking on your door and opened up and said, I want to come into your life. And if you open that door and receive that person in, what are you saying about that person? You trust her, do you not? Or you trust him? This is what true faith is. It's not just intellectual assent. It's trusting in Christ alone for eternal life. Whoever believes Him has eternal life. Not will have, but already has it. Eternal life is the present possession of everyone who receives Christ. Here's why. Look back up at verse 15. Whoever believes may in Him have eternal life. Who is He? In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overpower it. Jesus is life. He says that about Himself twice. I am the resurrection in the life. I am the way, the truth in the life. Jesus is life. And He wants to share His life with us. Unimaginable that He would want. But He does. Because God loves Him. And He being the God-man, He loves us in such a way. So, how do we do this kind of believing? What do we have to do? To get right with God. Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light. We've already seen that. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. And then the explanation is given as to why people who don't know Christ hate Christ in a sense. Hate the light. The person does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Now here's a far-fetched illustration Suppose I had a strong sense that I had a fatal illness. And I had good evidence based on my amateurish collection of information about the aforementioned disease. And I refused to go to a physician for an examination. In addition to that, I knew of people who had had the same illness and had not only survived, but were at that moment thriving because they got treatment at the proper time and they were made well. But I was afraid to come to the light of a physician's examining room. I was afraid to take a CAT scan. I was afraid to take an MRI or a sonogram. I was afraid because I was afraid that the people would know, who needed to know, to treat me, that I was sick. Do you remember how Jesus described Himself when He was maligned by the religious people of His day for hanging out with the unlovely and the unlikely, with sinners? He said, I did not come for the, for the well. Talking about religious snobs. I didn't come for the religious people. I came for the sick. You have to admit that you're sick to get well. That's the hardest part for most people. To just say, I'm a sinner, Lord, and I need forgiveness for my sin. And I'm asking you, Lord, humbly asking you, would you save me from my sin? Would you forgive me? And do you know there's never been an instant in history when that question has been posed to Jesus without receiving a resounding yes 
That's why I came. That's why the Father sent me. So I could give you eternal life. So, we must be like those people we read about in Numbers 11. Rebellious sinners. This was not the first demonstration of rebellion against God written in Numbers 11. God punished them. They were bitten by these venomous snakes. They pled with their leader Moses to ask God to forgive them. Moses, their intercessor, pled with God. God said, okay, Moses, make a serpent out of bronze, put it on a staff, put it on a prominent place in the camp, and spread the word around the camp. If people will simply look at that bronze serpent, they will be saved. Now, here's the truth. This is so simple. It becomes a stumbling block in your mind if you haven't received Christ. And here's why it's a stumbling block. Because the devil doesn't want you to have eternal life. He wants you to stew in your misery and to stew in your own self-condemnation. And he wants you to go out of this life without any hope. But what the Lord says to us, he says, look to me and be saved. Every person in that camp who looked at that bronze serpent healed just like that. And I guarantee you, if you will come to Christ and believe into Him and open your heart to Him. You can't do anything to save yourself. Look at verse 21. But he who practices practices the truth comes to the light. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. That his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. You know, that's kind of a weird word, wrought. Let me interpret that. As having been born again in God. To wrought... Something is to make it. We are made new by Christ Himself. And we're made into new people as we trust Christ. It's nothing that you and I can do. All we can do is look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and trust Christ to save us. That's how you come into the love of God. And that is the invitation which God gives us. He who practices the truth comes to the light. When you come to know Christ, you will be a different person. Rodney Stark, a noted sociologist at Baylor University, I don't know if he's still on the faculty there, may have retired. He's written a book called The Rise of Christianity. In that book, it's his story actually in a way of coming to Christ himself. He was a skeptic, he was a scholar, academician, but he was fascinated with the rapid rise of Christianity over the first three centuries of his existence. So he began to do investigatory work, as a good scholar would do, to try to figure it out. And this is what led him to faith in Christ. Had a large part in his coming to Christ. This is what he said. He said, I began to observe the way in which people who are followers of Jesus Christ treated other people who were in danger, who were not followers of Jesus Christ. And he used as his primary example... The illustration of the Black Plague, which swept across Europe more than once. And when the plague reached the gates of Rome, the Roman pagans would throw their own people out, their own children, their own spouses. They would throw them out for fear that they would be infected with this fatal disease. 
But he said the one thing that his research revealed was that the believing people, the people who trusted in Christ alone, stayed. And they didn't stay huddled up, cloistered away from the possibility of exposure to a critical, fatal disease. Rather, they cared for the people and they loved them. And the result was some of them died. I'm talking about the sick folks and some of the Christians got sick and died. But this is the way he put it. And I'm paraphrasing it a little bit. The way the believers would look to, have looked at it was this way. So what if we die? We know where we're going when we die. And I want to practice the truth. I want to be a person that person would say, and so many of them did, I want to be part of the solution to represent the kingdom of God in this world. Awesome. Have you received the gift of eternal life? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Is that your testimony? I hope it is. If it's not, today could be the day of your salvation. I finish with this story about a young man who had a falling out with his father. He was a prodigal of sorts. He left home, gone several months, had no real means of sustenance, was homesick to see his mother, his father, his siblings, his grandparents. He sent a telegram, this is back in the day, to his mom. And he simply asked if it would be possible for him to come home for Christmas. The mother went to the Western Union office, sent a return telegram and said, I will ask your father. And if he says yes, when you come in on the train, the train, you know, will pass by our property. You know the big tree in the front yard. If there is a white ribbon around one of the limbs, the answer is yes. Well, the young man scrambled and got a little money up, got a one-way ticket home from where he was living in a large city. He was seated beside an older man. And the man and he struck up a conversation, the older man doing most of the talking. He noticed that the young man was very nervous. And he became even more nervous as they were nearing the destination for this young man. The young man had told him he was going home. And the young man said, would you do something for me, sir? He said, yes. He said, you could help me. I'm so worried that my father will not have me back because of the way I disrespected him. Would you look? And he described the property, he described the tree. He said, I just can't bear to look for fear that there's no ribbon on the tree. So he said, I will. And the young man, when he saw them getting closer to the place, he just turned his head, buried it in his hands. And as they crossed by the property and passed it, the man sitting beside him, the older gentleman, said, there is not one ribbon on the tree. Every branch has ribbons on it. Come home is really what Daddy was saying, right? And this is what our Father is saying to us today. If we're away, come home. Come home. Let's stand together. We're going to sing.